If you're with us again uh, and you've been tracking with me, you'll know what I'm saying when I say that I am fairly enamored with David and his desire to seek God over and over again. And we saw this in chapter 23. It's sort of like right there in your face. God, should I do this? Should I go? Is he going to come and get me? Where should I go next? What should I do? And he, he has that uh, sense of a little child who just wants to know what to do next and is talking to God. I mentioned to you the parable of the persistent widow in Luke 18, 1 through 8. Let me read it to you real quick because I, I think it captures it. He told a parable, this is Jesus, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I fear God not, nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the righteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And then connected to that, we looked at the book of James, where James says that if any of us lacks wisdom, we can ask of God, and he will give to us liberally and without reproach. And there's countless other promises throughout the entire scripture that speak of our ability to come before God and to ask him for things. But here's the kicker as it relates to David and us. This all depends on the fact that we actually believe that we don't have the wisdom, the power, and the resources to know the right thing to do or to do it. But also believing that that power and that wisdom and those resources are available to us through prayer. So, David was a man who clearly understood his weakness and his helplessness. And that understanding led him to seek God about everything. And so this morning, do we believe that God's ways are not our ways? I know we say that. It's a nice saying. It, it sings well, God's ways are not our ways. But do we actually believe that God's ways are not our ways? Do we believe that there's a way that seems right to me, but in the end it leads to death? Do we believe that we are little children entirely dependent upon our heavenly Father? Because if we do, it will change our prayer life, it will change our view of the Word, and most importantly, it will change the choices that we make. And so as I mentioned last week, today we're going to take two chapters, uh, chapter four, 24 and 26. Actually, we're just going to take one chapter, and then I'm going to tell you that chapter 26 is pretty much the same thing. And I'm calling this sermon, I don't normally tell you my titles. A lot of times my titles are just for me, uh, but I like this one. Uh, so I'm calling this sermon two chapters, one point. Because David's actions in these chapters fly in the face of conventional wisdom. Y'all, if you read ahead, you know nobody, very few people in the world at any time would do what David does here. Not many would have the faith to do what David does. Only a man steeped in prayer and the word of God 
would make the decision that David makes, and he makes it twice. Okay, real quick, let me say this. Some biblical commentators think that this is the repetition of the same story because it's so similar. I don't believe that. I think it is two separate accounts. I think that the writer of 1 Samuel gives us these two separate accounts because he thinks it's really, really important. And we're going to see why it's so important. David is no usurper of the throne. He did not take the throne from David. It's almost like Israelite king propaganda. David was given the throne by Yahweh. He trusted God's promises. God removed the throne from Saul and gave it, gave it to David. But David had to wait on God's timing. And even, even what we have here is almost a little test of David. Are you willing to wait for God? Or do you want to try to take it for yourself? All right, let's read it. First part, one through four. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness in, in Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall, not, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So if we left off last week, when we left off last week, we were at the end of chapter 23. Saul was on one side of the mountain. David was on the other. David retreats. Saul comes after him. It looks like Saul is going to capture him. And then, providentially, the Philistines have attacked in a different part of the country. And so Saul goes to take care of the Philistine Invasion, And so God takes care of David from that threat. But obviously the relief is only temporary. And so here we find Saul right back at it. And so he brings 3,000 men. If you don't think that Saul is obsessed with David, he is bringing 3,000 men to come and find David in a place called En Gedi. And they set up camp at a place called Wild Goats Rocks. They were really good at naming their places. Love to know where Wild Goat's Rock is. So David is hiding in this area. Uh, it's an area down by the Dead Sea in Israel. It's called En Gedi. There are caves and rocks everywhere. And once again, we see God's providence on display because here's what happens. Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. In the Hebrew, it means he went into a cave to relieve himself. And it just so happens of all of the caves that Saul could have gone into, providentially, David's men and David are hiding further into that cave. Just absolutely crazy. Because, y'all, caves are all over. There are hundreds of caves. And so Saul goes into that one. Surely, this is God's gift to David. This, this is the point 
where David is going to get what he has sought after. And David's men think so. They say, this is your chance. This is what the Lord has promised you. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Let, it, let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the promised time. Go in there and defeat Saul. Take advantage of him as he is at his leisure and gain the kingdom for yourself. No need to ask God. This is a crazy coincidence. It's obvious what you should do. And David's men think that he should take advantage of the situation because it must be God's will. And the text says that David sneaked in and he stealthily cut off a little corner of Saul's robe. What would you have done? Would you have even stopped to pray? This is the man who has been hunting you like an animal. What would you have done in this situation? Look at verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So David does not kill Saul. He doesn't even hurt Saul. In fact, he cuts off the corner of his robe and David is guilt-stricken. The Lord forbid that I should do this to the Lord's anointed. So first of all, why does, God, why does David take this anointing so seriously? And just real quickly, we'll just say, because he understood that once anointed, an individual was consecrated or set apart to God. So to touch or defile or attack that anointed person was to approach the Lord himself and to try to remove him from his rightful place. And we've, we've talked about this before. This anointing was a very special thing. It applies to the kings of Israel, to prophets. I am not the Lord's anointed, okay? You may have heard in some of your other churches, you may have heard pastors, you know, do not touch the Lord's anointed, don't argue. That, that does not apply here, all right? I am, a, I am a spokesperson for the word. I am not anointed like Saul was anointed. Exodus twenty two twenty eight says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. So David is taking very seriously this command. Has Saul behaved unjustly? Yes. Has Saul behaved unjustly towards David? Yes. Has Saul done things that deserve to be punished? Absolutely. But David resolves that it is not up to him to bring that punishment. It's not for him to remove Saul. It is not for him to bring vengeance upon Saul. And so he gets up from the cave, Saul does, and he goes out and he never knows that his life was within a breath of being snuffed out by David's men. The text says, I like this, he persuaded his men. And there, there's probably even a note in your ESV because the Hebrew here is much stronger. It reads, David tore apart his men with his words. It's a violent rebuke. David draws a strong line in the sand. Saul will not die at our hands. And so I'm reminded here about exchange that you're familiar with because we go there very often here at Hope Bible Church. In Mark chapter 8, 
where Jesus takes the disciples away and they go away to that place called Caesarea Philippi and he says, first of all, he says, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say Elijah and some say a prophet. Some say a good man, and he says, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, you know, gets it right. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus takes a moment to tell them, okay, let me tell you what's going to happen next. I'm going to go down to Jerusalem, and the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're going to capture me, and they're going to torture me, and they're going to put me to death. But on the third day, I will rise again. And I think there's a little parallel here between Jesus' disciples and David's men. Because David's little army is just like the disciples. They're all in. We believe that you're going to be the king. We believe in God's promises. And so David's disciples, just like, I mean, David's um, military guys, just like Jesus' disciples, are saying, we'll follow wherever you lead. But when Jesus gives that little extra part about the suffering and the dying. You remember Peter takes him aside and grabs him by the robe, as it were, and says, never, Lord. That's never going to happen to you. And Jesus uses some of the strongest language that he uses anywhere against anybody, Pharisees and Sadducees included. And he says, Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have your eyes focused on God's will. You have your eyes focused on Satan. Why does Jesus use such strong language with his, with his probably his best friend in the world? Why does David tear apart his men for suggesting that he should kill Saul in the cave? It's because David and Jesus both recognize that God's people must take the strongest possible action against anything or anyone that might distract from them doing God's work God's way. Jesus is saying, Peter, I hate to tell you, buddy, but you have changed teams. You're tempting me. You're suggesting that there is an alternate path to glory other than the one that leads through the cross. And David is saying something similar. I will be king, but I will be king God's way. You men need to stop trying to tempt me to find some other path. But isn't it obvious, Jesus? You can be king without a cross. Get behind me, Satan. Isn't it obvious, David? The Lord has given Saul into your hand. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but human concerns. God's ways are not our ways. Do we believe that? Or do we say that and just assume that really we think the same thing that God does? Our commitment to the Lord can have no close rivals. We cannot even allow those who are closest to us to tempt us to deviate from that path. And this is the stuff of faith, y'all. This is the stuff of faith. These are the kind of decisions that put our loyalties to the test. Will we seek God's way even when it seems obvious? Will we even think to ask him? And so these, these can be situations of, in, of intense temptation, something we want, something we need, something that isn't even sin in and of itself, but is it something that God intends us to have? And is this the way that God wants us to have it? You know the story of the feeding of the 5,000. 
John's account in John chapter 6 actually adds some color to that account because at, at the very end, he says in verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Once again, Jesus, they want to make you king. Forget the cross. They're happy to do it right now. There's another way that doesn't involve the cross. Same in, different means. But what does Jesus do? He sends them away, and he goes up to the mountain. Mark tells us he went up to the mountain to pray. And if Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless one, Messiah, faced that kind of situation of having to say, no, that's not what God wants for me. I'm not going to get that that way. And then has to go immediately and spend time in prayer. How much more ought we to be on guard for opportunities, decisions that are fraught with danger and we're not being careful? Here's a chance to make more money. More money. What could be wrong with that? God's blessing. Here's a chance to get a promotion. That's a good thing. Success, a great deal on a new house or a new car or a new whatever. This is God's provision. A scholarship to the best university in the country. This will certainly lead to success. And there's nothing wrong with raises or promotions or houses or colleges. God may give us all those things and we should respond with thankfulness. But how much must you give up to get it? What is the cost? Does the job take away from your family and your church? Does the school have a solid base of Christians? Is there a local church nearby? Can I afford that great deal? Yeah, so the cost, the car that's 50000 is now 30000 Do I have $30,000 and still be able to be generous? Will I forsake my faith to advance? Why do I want these things? Is it just for me? And to make matters worse, you'll often have good friends, just like Peter and David's men. You'll have good friends who are sitting there saying, you deserve this. Do this for you. You're doing too much already. You're too into this Jesus thing. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, as if that person has ever existed and this brings us back to David's willingness to ask God about everything. Because God's ways are not our ways. And there is a way that leads to death. So we should ask God for wisdom, constantly trusting that he will give liberally and without reproach. And through all this, I'm coming just personally as I study these things to see how comprehensively we should be seeking God's help. Really, there are no little things. Everything can be brought to our Father. Remember what we've said before. Jesus Christ was the most dependent man who ever lived. He was absolutely not independent because he looked to his Father for everything. And this will seem ridiculous to those around us. I'll guarantee you it seemed ridiculous to those men that Jesus didn't, uh, that Peter didn't, uh, who, who are we talking about? David did not take Saul's life. And we may give off the feeling of being in a religious nut 
because you turn down that promotion because there are things that are more important, or you decide against that scholarship because of the things that are more important. But we define success different from the way that the world defines success, and we know that God can grant true success even as we obey his will. So before we move on from this point, I know it's hot in here and we're going to move quickly through the rest of the chapter because this is the big point. David could have killed Saul. David could have seized the throne that was destined to be his and he could have eliminated a lot of trouble. And David was encouraged by his men to do just that. But David waited on God and he waited for God to accomplish God's purposes, God's way. All right, let's read verses 8 through, 8 through 15. So David, not only does he decide not to fight, he actually acts like a peacemaker. Afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong treason or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? And whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge, be judge, and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand. It would have been so faithful of David to just let Saul go and not try to accomplish God's ends by his own means. But David takes a step further, and he actually tries to make peace with the guy who's trying to kill him. And we see this consistent life of faith. And this is, this is just how much God's ways cut against the grain of everything we believe. And we'll just look through this quickly. How he, First of all, David acts in faith. So the first thing he does is he alerts Saul to his presence. And this is tactically ridiculous. So Saul has been hunting David, and to this point, David has hidden himself from, from Saul. But David, rather than seeing the nearness of Saul as a chance to kill him, sees the nearness of, a Saul, of Saul to win him. Couldn't we use that perspective more these days? Like, my enemy is nearby. I have an option to, like, really hit him hard, or what if I try to win him to my perspective? What if I try to win him to God's perspective? Secondly, David acts in humility. It says, David falls to the ground and he pays homage. He respects the office of the king. He may not respect the man, but he respects the office of the king. And he's honoring the fact that this is God's anointed. Y'all, he's not play acting here. And this is complicated. 
but he's doing the right thing and he's being led by the Spirit. And so finally, he respectfully tries to change Saul's mind. Why do you listen, Saul, to those people who say David is trying to hurt you? And he holds up the robe as evidence. And he looks, he says, look, I had an opportunity to kill you and I didn't. And he seeks to be reconciled. I have not sinned against you. I will not harm the Lord's anointed. And it's just a respectful defense. And then finally, David makes his loyalties clear. This is key. And I I like this point. I, I didn't come up with this myself. I read it somewhere. But... David's desire to reconcile with Saul is not about his safety. It's because he genuinely wishes that Saul would change his destructive path. David knows he is safe in Yahweh. So whether he tries to make up with Saul or not, Yahweh is going to take care of David. But David is more concerned that Saul understand What's going on here? Verse 12, it says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my my hand shall not be against you. I know I haven't done anything to deserve the way you're treating me. And we'll we'll leave that up to the Lord. He's willing to let, let Yahweh defend him. David assures Saul that there will not be vengeance, but he's not letting Saul go scot-free, that vengeance, I, I, I just, I wonder, you know, how Saul felt about after this conversation, because basically what David is saying is, I'm not going to, to, to try to get vengeance on you, but if something doesn't change, the Lord is going to bring vengeance on you, and Yahweh alone can bring vengeance, and when he does, it's going to be bad. David's practicing what Paul wrote to Christians in Romans 12. Listen to this. It's so important today. Beloved, this is a command. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Y'all, we are wading into some deep water here. And it's not deep water because it's hard to understand. It's deep water because it's difficult to live this way. And we are talking about faith, the faith to trust God, that he will bring vengeance upon the wicked. And we've seen this over and over again, these psalms that we've looked at that have been associated with these stories, the trust that David has that God will actually bring judgment on our enemies. We are not allowing the wicked to get away with it. Nor does it mean that we're We lack feeling towards what people should receive justly for their actions. Psalm 54, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, David says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Isn't it interesting that our hearts kind of reject this idea of allowing God to be the one who brings vengeance, but we're also off-put by this idea that God is going to actually judge the wicked. Psalm 58. Who prays this? Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. 
Tear out the fangs of these young lions. O Lord, let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Let it be like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Our calling as individuals, I'm not talking about the state, I'm talking about us as individuals, as Christians within the church, you and me before God, our calling is not to bring judgment on people. Listen to Paul's words, beloved, never avenge yourselves and leave it to the wrath of God. In fact, give your enemy something to eat. Give your enemy something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. And I feel like there's a lot of well-meaning people today who are being overcome by evil rather than allowing their good to overcome the evil. And they look around and they see real wickedness, but they don't leave vengeance to God. And they seek vengeance for themselves. And this is the clear teaching of Scripture. By obeying this, please understand, we're not flattening out the reality of wickedness. It's a real thing. We're leaving the work of vengeance and judgment to God. He will do what he says he will do. And in the meantime, we are actually supposed to love our enemies. We are actually supposed to be concerned that they turn from their sin and let the blood of Christ cover them so that they don't experience God's judgment. That's Jesus, right? He who died for us while we were still sinners, while we still hated him. All right, let's finish it up. Verses 16 through 21. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall not depart, uh, shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. First of all, Saul, David's enemy, is forced to acknowledge that David has shown him indisputable goodness. Actually, in those first words of Saul, he actually says the word good four times in there, and it's not reflected well in the English. Saul is acknowledging, you have been good to me. Then Saul acknowledges that David has done something unheard of. He says, for if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Even Saul says, can't believe you just did that. Like, you had me. I was, I was there for the taking. You let me go. And then finally, Saul shows that he is not ignorant of the truth. He says, David, I know, I know you will be king. 
And Saul's only concern is that you allow, is that David allows his family to continue to live. Make a, make a covenant with me that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And so the chapter ends with David and Saul going separate ways. Saul doesn't repent. David isn't safe. And it's another one of those unsatisfying partings that the world is full of until Jesus returns. And David can only proceed knowing that he did God's will. And you, you guys, we know this, but I think sometimes when we do something hard for the sake of faith, something hard for the sake of Jesus Christ, it's like we want some kind of feeling. We want some kind of recognition. Like, I did this hard thing. Like, shouldn't I feel really good? Shouldn't I be really blessed? Shouldn't everything turn around? But we won't necessarily be vindicated in this life. And if you're looking for immediate gratification, it's going to be hard to stay faithful. Faithfulness must wait for the reward and for the judgment. And so I think we get these two chapters because there's something very important being communicated here. And if you read chapter 26, it's very, very much the same story. David goes into the camp and Saul's got his spear by his head. It says the Lord has put a heavy sleep on Saul. David grabs the spear and uh, gets out and has a very similar conversation. Many today would say that David was weak. He should have taken advantage of what was right in front of him. But brothers and sisters, our call to love our enemies it could become more and more of a reality. And I've made it clear to y'all that this world hating other people for whatever reason, it's not going to go away until Jesus returns. It is a systemic problem, but it's a much, much, much more systemic. It's so deep that, that secular people, people who don't believe in God, that don't believe in the sinfulness of man, they don't even understand. And so, therefore... For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to have to learn to love our enemies because that is what we are commanded to do. We are commanded to love them. We are not just commanded not to hurt them. We are commanded to seek to do them good. Feed them and give them something to drink. But beyond just loving our enemies, we must follow David's example and be willing to ask God about everything. Do you see the, do you see the point I'm trying to make here? I, I think everybody, you know, 999,999 people out of a million would have said, David, this is your chance. Kill Saul. It's so obvious. Nobody would have said, why don't you pray about that first? And David doesn't just not kill him, but he treats him with respect. And he tries to be a peacemaker. Be very careful about everything that seems obvious. Because the spirit of this age is divisiveness. The spirit of this age says fight. The spirit of this age says take vengeance now. But that is not the way of the cross. So let's be relentless in our pursuit of God's will. And let's be unified in our application of it. Let's pray. Father, one more time, I pray this morning that you would give us mercy to see these things from your perspective. 
to understand your commands and to apply your commands, I think we all understand. But it's so hard to live this way. Father, even now, as we're in this hot room, I pray that you would give us mercy to just have clarity of thought and that we would walk out of here less likely to fight and more likely to love and even to die so that Jesus might be glorified. Thank you for these two accounts and thank you for the faithfulness of David that is lived out before us and we thank you for the way that he pictures our Lord Jesus Christ who was unwilling to be deterred from your perfect will that he go to the cross and after the cross came glory. May we be so patient in Jesus' name, amen.